Hi everyone, Seven Investing founder Simon Erickson here, and I'm extremely pleased and excited to welcome my guest this morning. Beth Kindig is a tech analyst. Uh, in my opinion, she's actually one of the best tech analysts who really has her pulse on some of the most innovative companies in the entire world. She's joining me from, uh, from her office out in San Francisco. Beth, thanks very much for the time with Seven Investing this morning. Yeah, thank you for asking me. It's been good to get to know you guys on Twitter. Uh, you've got great, great coverage of tech stocks, so it's good to chat. Well, I'd love to dig into some of that coverage and talk about some of the individual companies because you've made some phenomenal calls over the years. But let's start at the 10,000-foot level. Beth, can you kick us off by just talking more broadly about the types of companies and the segments of the market that you're most interested in covering? Yeah, I guess the, my style would probably be micro-trends. I try to find areas where I think there's going to be massive growth, and then I look for the best companies. Um, so I don't really think about cloud software as cloud software. I think when I went into the year, um, you know, there's a cloud sell-off back in Q3, and I I remember reading, uh, there's a value rotation, I believe is what they called it, and I was like, wait a minute, like cloud is is, you know, is really safe. It's very insulated. It's, uh, you know, insulated from trade wars. Um, it actually saves companies money. So it's going to be, you know, somewhat recession proof. Um, and then when I, you know, when, when we, when we looked at that, uh, I broke it down even more and I looked at like productivity tools because within the category of cloud software, specifically productivity tools, were going to be the, the higher growth tools according to broader macro analysis and, um, you know, like, where companies going to be spending their money, and um, you know these trends. Then you know you look for like what are some of the better productivity tools out there, and uh, you know Zoom came up, Slack came up, um, you know those kinds of companies because what they're doing, I you know I think it's really hard to wrap your head around it right now because we see it as just a, a video conferencing tool or maybe just a messaging tool. But what they're actually doing is they're increasing productivity and driving down costs. And that's huge value to, um, you know, enterprises. And now it's leaking into the consumer markets, which is great too. Um, but yeah, I think it's like more of a micro trend, um, you know, philosophy investment thesis that I have, which is like, where is you know the growth going to be and uh not just broadly say cloud software but look even deeper and then go into what companies are going to meet that demand and so on that note like you mentioned the enterprise has embraced cloud computing right we've seen a lot of these companies growing at 50 percent or higher subscription revenue growth the growth is definitely there um the other side of it though is a lot of people are are concerned or hesitant about investing in the cloud because it's continually called overvalued, right? People are saying, oh, it's price to sales of 20 times or price to earnings if they even have any earnings or whatever your valuation metric uh, of choice might be. A lot of people are just saying, no, the cloud's not for me. It's too expensive. Um, how, do you, how do you think about that, Beth? How do you balance the growth and the incredible adoption that you're seeing of cloud computing in the enterprise and now the consumer market, like you mentioned? How do you balance that against the valuations that are out there right now? Yeah, I think uh, there's going to be some companies that don't come out of 2020 as strong as they went in. And I believe where we're at right now is there's some obvious 
um, companies benefiting from this work from home trend or whatever it is, um, you know, like Okta has, you know, pretty strong standing right now as well. I am not invested in DocuSign. I wish I was. That's the one that got away from me. Um, you know, it, they, they've got a great moat. They're going to be um, connecting industries that have been hard to push into, um, you know, software, cl- cloud software, such as finance, um, legal, legal and um, real estate. Those two industries have been really hard to, to convert. And I think that DocuSign is probably going to convert those very well now. Um, so you have these really obvious companies. And then the, the question is, though, is there's a whole bunch of companies that aren't so obvious. And I think that that's where the valuations are going to come into question. I'm willing to pay a lot more for a company that's going to be driving much more revenue. And I mean, this in many ways, you know, people are making bets and speculation on how long work from home or how long shelter in place is going to last. When will we have a uh, vaccine or, um, you know, something that, you know, how it, you know, stops the treatment of the, uh, that helps the treatment of the coronavirus. So it's like all that speculation. And um, I think it's obvious there's some companies that are going to do very well. You're probably going to have to overpay for those at this point. Um, and then there's a few other companies that, um, you know, a, a large amount of companies actually that are questionable right now. And I think that one thing I had tried to write about is, you know, on a very simplistic term, you could look at net retention rate, which is new subscribers churn and downgrades, but it really goes deeper than that. Are companies going to want to renew annually? So then you can look at what cloud software companies are on annual contracts. Um, Those are probably going to be negotiated down to monthly. And then you have our usage-based software companies going to do better than employee, uh, you know, per employee uh, uh, pay models. Um, you know, and you can look at it, there's a few different ways to look at it. I'm really looking forward to getting more information from the earnings we have coming up. But if unemployment starts to hit the tech industry or, you know, startups, one of my thesis from the whole, uh, the articles that I've been writing is that startups are going out of business. There's uh, quite a few have folded there. I can't remember how many there are, but, uh, um, you know, we're seeing it a lot now in San Francisco and Silicon Valley where startups are not able to weather, you know, not only April, but May and ongoing. So those two are closely intertwined. So, um, you know, it's just, it's like, do you, do you look at usage? Do you look at per employee? You know, those kinds of things. I was beginning to say that I think it's probably per employee that is going to be hit harder uh, because a company with, you know, a couple hundred people, even if they do layoffs, their usage may still remain steady. Um, I had actually heard a podcast from a venture capitalist who believed the opposite, that it was going to be pay by employee that did better in this um, environment. But, you know, these are good questions to ask, right? I think the market hasn't asked these questions and that's probably uh, more important than um, any any conclusion being right or wrong is like, are you asking these questions? Because they're very important questions. Um, I know that in the 2008, 2009 um, recession, software grew about 10%. Um, it, you know, it declined 20%, and it, but it still grew. Uh, cloud software did 10%, um, you know, revenue growth. So that's a far cry from where we're at right now on most of those companies. Like you said, quite a few are, you know, above 50% revenue growth. So, 
Um, you know, hopefully things go back to normal very soon. If so, this conversation will be dated at that time. But if it continues, then this might, you know, these are the kinds of questions that it's important to balance both outcomes right now. Sure. And, and your reports are very thorough, Beth. They're very good. Uh, multiple pages. Um, it seems like one of the, the industry's favorite metrics right now is dollar-based net expansion rate or dollar-based net retention rate, depending on the company, which kind of looks at the year-over-year -year comparison of how much money, how much revenue they're bringing in from existing customers. Do you think that's a metric that, that is useful for, for sizing up SaaS companies or in, in your valuations, are there other things that you look at instead? I do because it really kind of drills down into how effective a company can it is. Um, so, uh, you know, like Slack is a great example. Their net retention rate was like 143%. So that's pretty good. But at the same time, Slack is more of a freemium model. There's a lot of free, free users. So uh, their financials may not look very good right now. Um, once you have product market fit, which, which they do, uh, they have great product market fit, which you can tell because people are on the platform for 90 minutes a day that exceeds, um, they're engaged with it 90 minutes a day, which exceeds Facebook. Um, and then, you know, you have this net retention rate, which is helpful. Um, but their financials, if you go with more traditional uh, financial analysis, it, you know, it's not profitable. It's, it's going to have um, growing pains. So it helps you to keep the conviction when you look at the key metrics like that, in my opinion. Um, I actually have to plug in my computer. Sorry about that. Just sure. No sure. problem. Don't, uh... Brief interlude. Yeah. Okay. And, and Beth, you mentioned um, product market fit, which is something I've seen you speak about quite a bit over the years too. Does that translate internationally? Does a product that launches and really fits the United States market really well. Does that translate to other countries? It's a great question. It's something that you, you know, I, I dig around on as well. Like Pinterest, Pinterest is an interesting company on many levels. I like the company a lot. I think it has a lot of potential. Um, as many people are aware, even when they uh, filed um, their S1 filing, I kind of came out and was like, be careful because international is not monetizing nearly as well as domestic. And, um, so, you know, it's something to make sure, you know, that that leap does happen and that what they're doing here can translate. Um, I think for every company, it's really different. Um, sometimes, you know, the, the product is built and done. You know, this is an ad company, so it's a little bit different, right? Like how you monetize has always been um, geo-driven, geographically driven. Um, Facebook's a great example of that. What they monetize in the United States is very different than what they monetize globally, but you also don't want it so low that it doesn't cover, um, you know, the cost of goods, like the, you know, building this product and, and bringing it globally, which I think at the time that Pinterest went public, it wasn't actually um, able to cover its costs because it was monetizing so low uh, globally. But I think they're catching up a lot right now. And it's a product that I, you know, I like Pinterest a lot. Mm -hmm. um, something else, Beth, I know that your background at one point in your career, you were uh, an analyst and a scout for a venture capital group, right? You were, you were out kind of looking at, uh, at privately traded companies. Um, you know, obviously a lot of those have a lot in common with, with the publicly traded equities that we generally look at today. But just like you mentioned, a lot of startups are having problems out there. You know, we've 
gotten used to and accustomed to seeing the tech unicorns that are worth a billion dollars or more in their valuation, private companies. I, we've seen the, the Uber unicorns, literally Uber, you know, $50 billion before it went public. But now it seems like with, with COVID and everything else going on in the world, a lot of those startups are, are having some issues. I know that you're looking more at publicly traded companies, but I would like to ask you while, we're, while I have you here, um, do you have thoughts about the IPO market or private company valuations right now, considering everything going on in the world? Let's see here. Uh, you know, I look at it company by company um, and obviously, uh, you know, venture firms are waiting a lot longer to bring a company public. So they come on, you know, this is, it's almost like an experiment, really what we've been through, which is, can you grow these massive market caps and these massive companies and then put them on the public markets and have this, you know, very large exit, um, that experiment has not gone very well. Um, and a lot of times is, you know, it, it's really better in my opinion that a company, uh, go public before it's too big because what venture capitalists are trying to achieve is very different than what public market investors are trying to achieve or what I'm trying to achieve, which is, you know, when I think about a buy and hold, you know, I, I'd, I'd love to hold my companies up to 10 years on the market, um, you know, maybe a minimum of five on the public markets. You know, it's very much like a plane, like getting a plane into the air. Um, the VCs are the takeoff and, so they do these, like, you know, I think the first year that a startup um, is founded, they grow about 180% revenue growth, you know, so venture capitalists are like growing top line, top line, top line, and um, they've done it with various methods. So advertising growth hacking became very popular over the last 10 years. And this is part of the experiment as well, which is more of a mathematical equation around acquiring customers which can work if you're like a HubSpot, you know, if you're, you know, a marketing company like that, but can it work for uh, a company like Uber and Lyft? And my prediction back when they went public was no, that's not going to work because you needed product market fit, which is that the cost of the ride um, covers the cost that the company is incurring. And instead they were, um, you know, subsidizing those rides in order to drive growth, which is a kind of a growth hacking method, which is like, let me reduce the cost of the ride so that, you know, we'll acquire a lot more users. And um, basically, I think that uh, ideally a company has product market fit before they even come to the public markets. If they don't, they find it very quickly. And although I'm not um, somebody who obsesses over the bottom line, in fact, probably quite the opposite, I'm more obsessive about the product. Um, I think that to dump them to, to, you know, you've got to be careful of, uh, you know, companies getting dumped on the market that haven't achieved that product market fit, which would be seen. And if there's accelerating losses, um, if like quarter over quarter, year over year, the losses just never, um, you know, seem to um, find their equilibrium. You know, basically there's a relationship between top line and bottom line that I'm usually looking for. And in some cases, the bottom line, um, the losses just keep growing and growing and growing, and, and there's no way to contain them. And that's kind of been the case for a lot of venture capital, right? Or even, you know, the Vision Fund, Masayoshi-san, yes. SoftBank's Vision Fund has been growth at any cost, you know, forget the valuation, let's push the revenue as quickly as possible. It sounds like what you're saying, though, Beth, um, unit economics and profitability kind of comes back into uh, 
into the the limelight, right? Yeah, it does. And I think that, uh, uh, you know, growth hacking and trying to buy your audience is less desirable to me as a buy and hold public investor than a company that has true IP and has, um, you know, owns the technology stack or has IP or has a moat that is truly sustainable and that they don't have to like buy the customer, the customer, you know, comes to them is retained upgrades, whatever that might be that that's more attractive to me as a buy and hold public investor, because uh, until that occurs, it's just, it's, um, it's a short term exit in my mind. Yeah. And one last question for you while we're talking about the markets. I know you have a lot of background working with developers, software developers. Do yeah. you feel that there are, uh, and back to your comment about it needs to be the right product, needs to be the right product market fit. Do you yeah. think that there are certain segments of the market that are really just in need of, of a solution? You know, whether it's security, internet of things. I mean, are there certain areas of the market right now that you think are the best opportunities for startups and developers? Well, I think developers are probably moving from mobile over to AI at this point. You know, they have to go through schooling, training. They have, there's only so many platforms and operating systems that they can learn before. So, so anyways, it's a wave. It's almost like a, you know, you had the internet and then you had the mobile and now the next 10 years is going to be defined by AI. And that's really, uh, you know, it's kind of a big deal actually to get in front of uh, what's going to happen on AI. So AI is going to be four to five times larger than mobile. And, uh, you know, mobile brought us Apple. It brought us a lot of Google, brought us Facebook, native app. Um, so AI should have all of the world's most valuable companies by a long shot, you know, by the time we're done with the next decade. And so anyways, I see developers kind of moving, migrating that way. But I think it's really important to bring up developers because, um, I sometimes wonder if public, the public markets and the, you know, and people who have, you know, basically straight finance backgrounds, if they understand how much the developers really drive the decisions. Um, I track the developer market and developer choices and, and what those, what, what they're doing very, very closely to make my investment decisions because they are the decision makers. There's also this term called bottoms up, uh, you know, some of these cloud software companies, some of the most successful cloud software companies were bottoms up. They're evangelized by the, by the employees at the company rather than the C-suite, the CTO, the, you know, whatnot. And so I think that it's really interesting because if you can watch those two groups, whether it's developers or the employees at companies and see like what they're, what they're, um, you know, what they're adopting, it, it, you know, it's a great way to build uh, an investment in a company. Yep. Great phrase. Bottoms up. I'll, I'll keep that in mind for looking at um, what developers are interested. I'll also keep that in mind for, for Friday happy hours. Also seems like a good phrase for the end of the week as well. Uh, let's talk about some individual companies. <laughs> uh, you know, one that, that you've uh, had a lot of success with is Roku. Beth, yeah. And, you know, this is kind of the bigger trend is uh, shifted digital advertising, right? We're, we're watching TV and, and shows in different ways. It's not just on linear television now, it's on tablets and internet connected devices. And that's kind of shifting how advertisers are spending their budgets. What's your overall take on Roku? Yeah, uh, 
Roku, I have had a long uh, relationship with Roku. I started covering it around a little bit after its IPO. It was priced around 30 and um, it went to 60. And I think it went back down to 30, you know, and then it went back up and then it goes back down and then it goes back up. And so I get a lot of questions about Roku and it's, um, it's my largest holding actually from, from the early days. And um, although maybe today Zoom could potentially beat that uh, depending on what happens today. <laughs> uh, but basically Roku, um, there's, it's many things in my mind but ultimately it owns the technology stack. So you have the hardware and the operating system, and then you have the ad platform, and then you have the Roku channel. I really like when I can invest in the entire technology stack. Um, a good example of this, and this is not, and I'm not saying they're on par by any means, but um, you know, that's why Apple did so well is that they owned from, you know, the device, the operating system, and then they, they allowed other apps to come on, of course, that's, you know, the robust app market, but they had their own apps as well. And um, that's just, it's just a really nice, clean model. And people ask me a lot about the moat for Roku. Um, I think that people overestimate tech giants. I, you know, it, you know, YouTube and Instagram and whatnot, they were all acquisitions, you know, and uh, those are some of the, the better, um, uh, you know, uh, new markets that those tech giants went into. And uh, so, you know, but, but with that said, you know, Google has Android TV and um, Amazon has Fire. Of those, you know, Google could potentially be the bigger competitor. Uh, but with that said, um, Roku has been developing this operating system for 15 plus years. They are the best in the industry when it comes to, um, you know, over the top operating system, over the top set top box. Um, they were around when Netflix was CDs and, um, or DVDs. And um, basically with Roku, you're getting like the best operating system in the market. You're getting a really strong ad platform. The ad platform growth has been really strong, uh, 75% more or less in this last earnings report. Um, the average revenue per user on Roku is $24. And um, that is incredible for how long the ad platform, I think the ad platform launched two to three years ago. Um, it took Facebook maybe 10 years to get to that ARPU. And now they're at around 40, which is kind of the, the, the record right now. Um, but that just shows you the, the relationship between supply and demand. Um, and then the other reason, so you, you have the, this trend of the cord cutters, right? Like they're, they're cutting the cord, they're going from cable over to, um, you know, whatever service they choose, whether it's, you know, Roku or whatnot. And um, you have those customers who, you know, the users, the people viewing the content, but you also have these pay TV ad dollars that have been trying to get um, as, you know, trying to merge data with the video impressions on television. The completion rates on television are much better than mobile or desktop. So there will always be advertisers that don't actually want to buy mobile inventory or desktop inventory, uh, or if they do, they don't see it as, as optimal, uh, Coca-Cola, Budweiser, Pizza Hut. They really love 
television ads because you know you're you're arrested there like you you have to watch the whole ad um it's and so uh basically when you can take the completion rates of television and you can add in the data of connected tv you have a really important migration of ad dollars and that's where uh back to kind of when we first you know started speaking today i talked about micro trends you know, I followed the productivity tool micro trend. I'm following a connected TV micro trend, but I'm really following the migration of pay television ad budget. Like that, that is a big migration to follow um, in whatever way you choose to do that. Some people are choosing with the trade desk. Um, you know, that's a that's a solid choice too. I prefer Roku if I were to choose between the two of them. But they're they're another company that is capturing the pay TV dollars. So. Uh, for me, it's it's a little bit of everything. It's the operating system. It's the, um, the the experience of the management, how long they've been working on this. It's the pay TV ad dollars. It's the trend of cord cutting. Um, you know, and it goes on from there. It, it definitely seems like connected TV is a natural beneficiary from pay TV and the migration, like you mentioned, of those ad dollars. We're seeing connected TV ad dollars going forty percent a year right now. This could be an eleven billion dollar market by next year. So it's 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 definitely very real out there. And uh, it seems like Roku is in a great position to capitalize on that. Uh, Beth, maybe one last question for you. Our, our audience at 7investing is individual investors. Uh, we're very interested in, in all of these trends. Um, is there anything that you think that we should really be paying attention to right now? There's a lot of stuff going on in the market. We talked about several of those trends already, but anything else that you really think should be on our radar as we see uh, the markets changing and innovating? Yeah, uh, that's a good question. I'm working on a connectivity thesis right now. I actually began it before um, the coronavirus and the shelter in place began and um, gotten kind of lucky there. But I, I saw a bigger trend coming, which you might call it 5G, but uh, you might look at what's going on with Huawei and you might look at um, now, you know, these ongoing work from home and the need for connect, you know, connecting and, and connectivity. Um, you know, I had talked about Insego uh, on the premium site, which is hotspots and um, last mile connectivity, basically. So we have kind of maxed out what we can do with infrastructure and the connectivity and the speeds that we have today. Like we've kind of maxed that out. And so underneath that, we need to build um, or supply, you know, hotspots and, you know, like the fixed wireless access market is going to grow 98% CAGR over the next couple of years. So that's kind of a micro trend right there that um, we need to onboard more and more people onto these networks. And how are we going to do that? Um, and then you're seeing some of the fallout with the United States and Huawei, which is really important to track because Huawei's always had really strong infrastructure products. Who's going to make up for that? And um, when you are having all these people work from home, um, you know, how do you, you know, provide for that, the connectivity? And, you know, you have uh, Wi-Fi 6 coming out, but you also have, you know, 5G and 5G can't really penetrate walls. So that's another issue. And so then, you know, people love to talk about autonomous vehicles and AI and da 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 and um, internet of things and machine to machine connections and industrial robotics, which are all super important, but what, how are you gonna, how are you gonna run that, those technologies if you don't have a strong uh, layer 
uh, you know, in the infrastructure layer and the connectivity and the last mile connectivity. So that's some things that I had already kind of been looking into the future on and they got somewhat accelerated with coronavirus and shelter in place. But now um, we're seeing a lot of uh, talk from the United States government that, um, you know, they want more domestic players there. So I, I think all of that's really interesting because I do, uh, you know, we, I, I am a big believer that AI is going to run the, you know, not only the tech industry, but it's going to run even the public markets, meaning like the majority of the um, best returns and gains over the next 10 years will be somehow AI related. And uh, anyways, to, 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 to start that 10 year um, path, you know, it's like, how, how, how are you going to provide for all that connectivity? So that's something that I had been looking at. And I think that that's a really important um, uh, area to look at this year. Yeah. yeah. Great point. Uh, AI is going to change a lot of things and uh, a lot of the chip makers and the infrastructure providers and everyone else is going to be keeping up with that 10 year trend, just like you mentioned. I kind of want to ask you, where do you guys, what do you guys think about this next year or where are you turning your attention? I mean, for me, there's a zillion trends to look at, but, but the one that I think that, that hits home to what you're, what you just mentioned is I think there's going to be uh, a need for hardware that can keep up. Yeah. Right. Yeah. We're going to have to see new architectures for the, the picks and shovel providers that we've gotten used to doing things on CPUs. And then we kind of transitioned when we went to the cloud to GPUs. But yeah. even that, I think you're going to have to see some new custom architectures to keep up with these demands of the software. Uh, because what we have right now, at least from the research I've done, is, isn't going to cut it um, five years, 10 years out, especially not 10 years out. We're going to have to get more creative with that. And yes. so huge opportunity if you're a large ship maker that's dominated this market with, uh, with existing technologies, but Moore's law is, is kicking in. And um, even the newest uh, parallelization, you know, the GPUs and the things we've gotten used to with that. I, I could talk about this for a long time, Beth. I'll leave it at that. I think there's a lot of opportunity for hardware uh, to keep Thank up with you, those Simon. Yeah. Um, I really appreciate the time. Beth Kindig, again, you know, one of the best tech analysts out there in San Francisco, really looking at some innovative things. Her website is research.beth.technology. Uh, Beth, thank you very much for the time with Seven Investing this morning. Thank you so much, Simon. Thank you. And thank you for tuning in. We are here to empower you to invest in your future. We are Seven Investing. A reminder that people on this program may hold positions in the companies that are mentioned. Buying and selling stock carries financial risk, which could include the loss of capital. The views in this program should not be taken as personalized advice. And before acting on any of the information provided, listeners are encouraged to consult with a financial or tax professional.